Noelle, if you went to high school on a hellmouth, what metaphorical monster would you have turned into? A harpy. They steal your food and then poop on it. You? Wait, no. They steal your food and then poop on it? The ancient Greeks were weird. What kind of monster would you be? I don't know. I mean, what kind of monster is painfully insecure and always joking to cover up an innate sense of worthlessness? Hmm. A really ineffective troll? Go ahead, cross the bridge. I'm not asking you any questions. I'll just be here alone with my goats. Ooh, goats! Welcome to Still Pretty, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast. I'm loony fringe film scholar Noelle LaCroix. And I'm research girl and story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. And we're here today to talk about Out of Mind, Out of Sight, the 11th episode of season one. Out of Mind, Out of Sight was written by way too many people. <laughs> story by Joss Whedon, Matt Kine, Joe Ragmeyer, Rob Deshotel, and Dean Batali are all story editors. And writing team Ashley Gable and Thomas A. Swindon wrote the teleplay. Riza Badi is the director, and this is the only episode of Buffy he will direct. A warning before we begin, every episode of Still Pretty talks about each episode within the greater context of all of Buffy, and as such, is fully spoiled. All right, before some invisible malevolent force pushes you down the school steps, let's go on patrol. In Out of Mind, Out of Sight, Cordelia is campaigning to be named May Queen at the prom, and Buffy remembers the life she had to give up to become the Slayer. Yeah, what kind of moron would I be May Queen anyway? I was. Do what? When Mitch, Cordelia's date for the dance, is brutally attacked with a baseball bat by an invisible force, the Scoobies suspect the Hellmouth is at work again and get on the case. Buffy finds a message on the lockers where he was attacked, and shares it with her friends. Look, that's all it said? Look at what? Look at Mitch? Maybe. All I know is it's a message. Next, Cordelia's best friend Harmony falls down the stairs at school and insists an invisible force pushed her. Buffy follows the sound of a girl's laughter into the empty band room and is bumped into by something she couldn't see. I touched the thing, but it didn't go through me. It bumped into me, and it wasn't cold. So we're talking about what, an invisible person? A girl. She laughed. A girl on campus with the ability to become invisible. That is so cool. While Buffy follows up on Cordelia, Angel arrives in the library to talk to Giles about what's going on with the master. Something big is coming, and Giles needs a missing codex to figure out what it is. It's reputed to have contained the most complete prophecies about the Slayer's role in the end years. Unfortunately, the book was lost in the 15th century. Not lost. Misplaced. I can get it. The Scoobies figure out that the attacker is Marcy Ross, a girl who felt invisible and thanks to the mystical transformative power of the Hellmouth, became literally invisible. When Cordelia's favorite teacher is attacked and another message is left behind, it's clear that Cordelia, for once, is right to think she's the center of everything. Somebody is after me. They just tried to kill Mrs. Miller. She was helping me with my homework. And Mitch and Harmony, this is all about me. Me, me, me! Wow, for once she's right. Buffy agrees to protect Cordelia and stop Marcy, but Marcy gets the jump on them, knocking them both out and tying them up in the backstage. Meanwhile, Giles, Xander, and Willow are locked in the school basement with the gas turned on. 
Luckily, a certain non-breathing vampire comes to the rescue. I came in through the basement. I smelled the gas. So we, we were shutting off, otherwise the whole building would go off. I'll get it. It's not like I need the oxygen. At the bronze, Buffy and Cordelia wake up tied to chairs as invisible Marcy pulls out a tray of surgical equipment intent on slashing Cordelia's perfect face. Buffy frees herself from her bonds and uses her other senses to locate Marcy. She knocks her out. At that moment, a handful of creepy men in black collect Marcy and drag her away. It's happened at other schools. We're not at liberty to discuss that. It would be best for you to forget this whole incident. Do you know that you guys are very creepy? Cordelia does her best to thank Buffy for saving her, but gives in to peer pressure instead, once again insulting the Scoobies and walking off with her coterie. And somewhere in a government building, an invisible Marcy starts her new life in a new school. Also full of a bunch of invisible kids. Welcome, Marcy. Hey. Class, this is Marcy. Hi, Marcy. Hi, Marcy. All right, so, Noelle, out of yes. mind, out of sight. What did you think? Mm-hmm. I really like this episode a lot. Okay. Um, Mostly because it's so clear with its its uh, theme right off the bat, mm-hmm. so to speak. Oh, oh, an unintentional pun. That's right. terrible. Because it's clear. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I'm just going to, right off the bat, I'm just going <laughs> to laugh at my own jokes this entire episode. <laughs> oh, oh, I've got, there's... We're queued up with jokes for this one. Okay. Dad jokes all dad jokes all the way down. Dad Sorry. jokes all the way through. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. Yes. I feel like the the invisible outcast we establish right away mm-hmm. works really well. I dig it. How do you feel about this episode? Um, okay, I, I've, it's never been one of my favorites, but it's never been like one that I've hated. I think that there's a lot of stuff going on here that I actually do really like. I like the the clarity, you know, again, with the, the clear pun for the invisible girl, but whatever. Um, the clarity <laughs> of this metaphor, you know, that we really mm-hmm. are following through on you feel invisible, you become invisible, that the hell mouth has that, that kind of transitive property, which I think is really kind of cool. And it's a cool sort of experience expansion of the Hellmouth mythology, which I really like. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, like, I, I think for me, mostly it's the, um, it's the ending. It's the, the men in black. It's like, suddenly we're an episode of X-Files. Suddenly yeah. we've got these guys coming in and this, this shadow government installation where children, invisible children, who apparently this happens on the Hellmouth, I guess, Hellmouth's all over the place um, around high schools where children are feeling invisible and becoming invisible. And now they're going to be trained to be assassins, which feels a little weird it's a little more sci-fi than fantasy which is the the realm that Buffy is firmly in mm-hmm. and I don't know that felt a little weird to me but aside from that you know I mean I liked it I liked what we have with I like Cordelia Cordelia is really great in this episode um and uh, and it's kind of nice to see Buffy sort of wistfully looking at the life that she could have had, that she would have been Cordelia, maybe a nicer Cordelia, but she would have been the Cordelia in her high school if she hadn't been 
a slayer. So I kind of found that to be a nice sort of reflection between her and Cordelia. Cordelia having those moments of um, of insight into what it is to be popular, that being popular does not mean that you're not lonely. Um, yes. But yet it's it's better than, you know, being lonely all by yourself. So there's that, yeah. which I thought was really good. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of stuff in here that um, that I like, but it's always kind of one of those episodes where I'm like, okay, you know, here, we did a thing. That's fine. <laughs> you know, um, but I guess partially too, because it's, it's not a hellmouth monster. It is a kid, like a normal human kid yeah. who was affected by the hellmouth, you know, and yes. here she is, you know, invisible and missing for six months like her parents are must be losing their minds not knowing where their kid is I imagine a lot of parents in Sunnydale are going through huge amounts of trauma considering how many kids die on a regular Mm -hmm. basis um and no kids died in this episode so at least there was that but it's just it feels it feels a little off to me for the Buffyverse I think for for those reasons because it does feel more sci-fi than fantasy even though we do have that really great metaphorical transition going on yeah it's definitely I think it's the first episode of Buffy where the the conflict is not really supernatural it's a it's more it's more in the science fiction space I mean Giles explains it as um metaphysics doesn't he isn't there yeah he explains it in scientific terms and not in supernatural terms it's not that marcy has the power to become invisible it's that she lacks the power to make herself visible um as much as she tries right so she's she is more a victim of you know the the hellmouthy fantasy element but it's explained and then it's treated in a sort of scientific sense, but not really because we don't get an explanation. But it really does feel like an episode of The X-Files at the end. Yeah. No, it feels a lot more like an episode of The X-Files, which of course did did traipse in that fantasy realm, but it was more in the sci-fi part of things, you know? So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little bit weird. It's kind of a, one of those episodes that's sort of, uh, Buffy is still figuring out what it is. And, and, you know, my argument is that um, until Prophecy Girl, Buffy doesn't know what Mm -hmm. it is. Once we hit Prophecy Girl, which is the next episode that we're going to be looking at, once we hit that, Buffy is locked and loaded. It is what it is, and it knows what it is. And as we move into season two, we're going to get a much more Buffy sense of Buffy. But this Mm -hmm. episode is just kind of one of those episodes that's just sort of a little bit weird. It's also, you know, kind of it's it's written by people who are not going to be an extended part of the you know Buffy behind the scenes. We haven't really established Mm -hmm. our main crew yet, but uh, but the the vision of what Buffy is just hasn't really solidified yet. So yeah. we're in this like kind of weird amorphous space between X-Files and, and Buffy and, and how all this stuff, you know, kind of works. So, mm-hmm. um, so it was, there was some fun stuff in it though. Um, so what did you see here? What, what struck you the most in this episode? Well, this feels like a really great, opportunity to dive into the queer subtext of Buffy. No, I am um, so excited am for that. <laughs> absolutely. I am living for the queer subtext in this episode. Um, <laughs> I I mean, I, I, was it yesterday that I said to you, this is about bisexual erasure, literally? And <laughs> you said, what? And I said, <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, but yeah. by, I mean, bisexual erasure is kind of a thing on Buffy. Yeah. Um, 
And we'll see that, especially when we start talking about Willow's entire sexuality arc. And Mm -hmm. I will have many, many things to say about that when we're more, you know, in it and looking at how that's treated and the language around it and all that. Um, But I think it's really interesting that here we have um, Clea Duvall, gay icon Clea Duvall, um, (laughs) who if you were if you were in high school in the late. 90s. Mm-hmm. I mean, but I'm a cheerleader is one of the like seminal pop cultural gay texts. Um, and so, and I think that that's a lot of people's association with Clea Duvall, who uh-huh. does identify as a lesbian. Mm-hmm. Um, not at this point in her career. This was, I think, two or three years before, but I'm a cheerleader. And um, so that wouldn't have been on people's minds, but Clea Duvall has said, about playing um, outsider characters, Mm -hmm. that that is what she's drawn to, that she tends to be drawn to that kind of character. So I know we talked, I think it was last time we talked about Death of the Author. Right. And, uh, you know, the intent behind a lot of these choices that get made uh, for film and television. But um, I don't know, you know... I don't know that textually Marcy is supposed to be queer, mm-hmm. but I think it's interesting that we have a queer actress who has talked about um, really identifying with being the other and those characters that are on the fringe, that are on the outside and are therefore more complicated. Um, right. Well, I mean, the fact that like anything that Clea Duvall is in her personal life or, or anything like that is extra textual. So like in the actual text of the thing itself, I think you've got enough really interesting support for this argument. But it was funny because when you first mentioned it to me, I was like, what? No, because of course, I'm straight, been straight my whole life. And so because of that, there are certain things that I am not as likely to see, you know, that other people might see more clearly. And so a lot of times when you bring these things up, I always feel like such an asshole because I'm like, no way. You know what I mean? Like, I'm open to it, definitely. But it's something that honestly would never have occurred to me because I've grown up straight in a world that does erase anything else, you know? So like, I completely 100% stand behind this theory you know um and I think there's lots of textual evidence for it but I'm just I'm just admitting you know I'm just acknowledging (laughs) to the world that uh, that Noel opens my eyes so much all the time and it's awesome that's the bisexual agenda by the way everybody so you know right get your clipboards and your pamphlets yes it's official okay um But that's, you know, it's it's perfect that you say that because that is exactly the point of the episode, the queer subtext of the episode, I yes. think. And, um, you know, exactly the problem that Marcy is running into is mm-hmm. that she is, you know, the, the story is so um, heterocentrist, yes. uh, heterocentrist, you know, assuming that everyone is heterosexual. And we start with this May Queen idea, which is kind of institutionalized heteronormativity, isn't it? I mean, a May Queen represents May Day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's interesting that in popular culture, and I'm sure, I'm certain that the writers and directors on the show would have been aware of The Wicker Man, mm-hmm. the uh, 1967 horror film um, that connects May Day with sexual deviance and occult rituals and human sacrifice. So... <laughs> 
Oh, well, I had no awareness of that, but that's awesome. Okay. You know, okay. All right. The Wicker Man is fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's especially fantastic if you yourself identify as a sexual deviant. Right. <laughs> um, no, it's it's very interesting. I think it's probably, it was probably more impactful when it was made, terroir sure, and all that. Sure. Um, but I think that especially in the in the suspense, I don't want to call Buffy horror, but right. in the sort of suspense fantasy space, mm-hmm. um, you know, the I think that the that the May Queen and the idea of May Day bring the Wicker Man and that sort of um, you know ooh, something something not right is going on here to mind. Okay, um, so but but you're saying that the May Queen though is institutionalized heteronormativity heterocentrism. Yes, but yet the Wicker Man Association brings in I don't want to call it deviant <laughs> brings in no, I mean alternatives right you know um, so so what is the argument that there's that we're presenting an element of the May Queen that on its face because it's the May Queen who's there with a the boy and all that kind of stuff that it's heteronormative but that there are elements of you know of other alternative lifestyles underneath it well that there's something darker underneath mm-hmm. it that there's something darker yeah. underneath this idea of you know the May Queen I don't you know Sunnydale. I'm not sure this is how Sunnydale does it. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, we know it's not because Cordelia's dress is not white. But, you know, right. the May Queen wears a white dress to symbolize mm-hmm. purity and blah, 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 blah. I th- but I think it's interesting that they use the May Queen. The, the, the wording is interesting to me, that it's the May Queen and not the prom queen. Right. Because that's mm-hmm. clearly what we're talking about. And Buffy says, you know, well, we didn't call it the May Queen at her school in right. L.A., mm-hmm. but that's what it was. I just... It's such an interesting detail mm-hmm. um, because why, you know, why make it the May Queen if not to attach it to the idea of, you know, the image of May Day and, mm-hmm. you know, possibly any sort of other um, eerie <laughs> uh, associations that, you know, people may have from the pop culture space. Because, of course, right. Buffy is also a show that's a very aware of pop culture and mm-hmm. how um, how stories function within that larger pop cultural landscape. Yeah. So mm-hmm. um, I think I just, it stuck out to me because mm-hmm. I think it would have been very easy for them to talk about, you know, the prom and being the prom queen. And we all have a sort of mental script for yes. mm-hmm. what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that, that at some point, at some high schools, probably not in 1997, mm-hmm. but at some high schools, um, prom, prom king, prom queen, there's not a gender normative um, expectation there that uh-huh. anybody, that any any student of any gender um, can be elected either one of those things. In 1997, probably not. Right. Um, but still, it's more, it's more open. I feel like the idea of a prom queen is more um, open-ended, maybe mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a little bit less specific than a May queen. And we have spent way too much time on the linguistic uh, <laughs> breakdown of this idea. But anyway, yeah. Anyway, I've, mm-hmm. I've it that that jumped out at me. And you know, regardless of any sort of implication of that language mm-hmm. in and of itself, we have the girls talking about fashion. Right. And, you know, what the dress is going to be. And then we have the boys locker room talk. Oh, literally. Yeah. I know. I know. (laughs) 
I know. And I hate that. I hate that exchange so much. I hate it so yeah. much. Not because it's horrible and and just gross, but because it's so clunky. Yeah. It's not no. her arm I'm looking to be on. Uh, what? What? I no. Know. Ew. It's just no, completely it's, gross. And at that point, just, I'm like, all right, you know, I'm kind of glad he got hit with a bat. Yeah. Yeah. So then, and then we have Mitch alone in the boys' locker room, and I'm like, yeah, hashtag feminism. Boys right. get attacked in locker rooms too. <laughs> yeah, the locker rooms I think we've established are the most dangerous place. They you know, really in the Buffyverse, are. Is the locker room. They really are. Although, did you notice that the boys' locker room is a lot nicer than the girls' locker room? Uh, no, I hadn't really noticed that. It didn't look that nice yeah. to me. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's still a locker room, but yeah. gee, I mean, it's like spacious. And, and look at the windows. You know, there's no like light coming in, right? Creepy flickering light. Yeah, no. It, yeah, yeah, fairly, <laughs> fairly true. Yeah. <laughs> the patriarchy, everyone. Yes, um, thank you. <laughs> anyway, so Mitch, Mitch is alone in the locker room after having this gross exchange with his gross friends. And then we hear feminine laughter in the boys' locker room. Mm-hmm. And... Mitch says, all right, fun time's over. Come out. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, all right. Hello, queer narrative. Let's do this. this is, you know, we talk about coming out. Really? Sure, sure. And then Marcy hits him, you know, Marcy hits him with a phallic symbol, which I just <laughs> adore. Hits wow. him with his own, hits him with his own heterocentrist patriarchal bat. Right, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Um, but we're, I mean, we're, um, we are four minutes in mm-hmm. at this point. We're four minutes in. We've talked about outcasts and privilege. We've talked about, um, you know, we've had, we've had our vapid girls, our stereotypical, uh, girls doing stereotypical girl talk. We've got mm-hmm. toxic male sexuality, mm-hmm. and we've couched everything in this very heterosexist, very heterocentric. May Queen King celebration. Wow. Yeah. So that is a lot of stuff unpacked from the first four minutes. First four minutes. I mean <laughs> Good job. Good job, LaCroix. I like it. Thank you. Yeah. I feel like it's it's really coming at it from a queer perspective as a mm-hmm. as a queer person, but also as a a, a fan of queer film theory, mm-hmm. which looks for queer narratives in you know, all cinema and television, mm-hmm. textually queer or otherwise. I mean, it just feels it feels very pointed uh-huh. to me. Wow. That we've got this girl who like does not have a place yeah. in, in any of these spaces. I mean, even even when she's in English class trying to make herself be seen. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's raising her hand. It's not that she's She's not hiding right. on purpose. Mm-hmm. She's trying to involve herself in the conversation that Cordelia and Harmony are having in mm-hmm. the in the girls' bathroom. She's trying to answer questions in English class. Um, it's really, you know, Buffy says it. We did this to her. It really is others' failure, refusal mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. see and acknowledge her that turns her invisible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I and I feel just, you know, especially, you know, as I said already, within the larger context of Buffy and it's it's uh, really gross by erasure. I feel like this is a little bit of that as well. 
And then when when uh, Marcy throws Harmony down the stairs, there's a little rainbow poster on the wall behind her. <laughs> so, wow. You know. I don't know. The more you bring this stuff up, the more I think, hey, maybe they knew what they were doing. Um, but it is OK. Now, you have Marcy as like a, a representative, a representative symbol of by erasure. Yeah. She's obsessed with Cordelia. Do yeah. you think that 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 she was sort of in love with Cordelia? I think that if you wanted to read it that way, if you wanted to read Marcy as the sort of psycho lesbian character, yeah. you could do that as well. Um, I don't because, mm-hmm. I mean, we can talk about that, um, but I think I don't uh, in part because of, of the the greater context of the show, mm-hmm. but also because Marcy's rage is yeah. equal opportunity. Right. I mean, her target is Cordelia, but she's violent toward people of all genders right um, we could say she's bi furious <laughs> i have been sitting on that dad joke this entire time i Noelle love LaCroix, it i love LaCroix, your bisexual dad serving bisexual dad jokes um but i mean she's her anger is you know across the board i mean i think if she were going to be if if we were going to make her the the trope of the you know the mm-hmm. psycho lesbian which we've had since the 30s uh, probably yeah. longer but mm-hmm. on screen um that is a holdover from the Hayes code where any sort of and I'm using air quotes here deviant sexuality had sure. to be punished you could never uh depict somebody you know you could you could depict queer people on screen mm-hmm. and they often were present but uh as villains yeah and the the sadistic the the uh the sadistic really calculating lesbian is one of those um, uh-huh. one of those villains that you see an awful lot and i think we do get some of that with marcy with her doctor's bag mm-hmm. and her medical setup i mean she's deliberate in what she's doing she's well and she's also i mean trying to maximize she numbs cordelia's face not mm-hmm. to stop the pain but to keep her from passing out because she wants her to be awake through the horror of it. Mm-hmm. Like that's, yeah. that's seriously, you know, because Marcy is sympathetic when you see her in her flashbacks, right? Mm-hmm. We see these memories of her. Um, she's trying to talk to people. She's trying to get Cordelia's attention. She's trying to get, um, you know, the teacher's attention. She just feels invisible. Nobody sees her. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah. so she's trying to keep herself from from like fading off into nothing, you know. Yeah. But so she's sympathetic in those flashbacks. Yeah. Um, but uh, but she's also like so crazy and so evil. And there's that moment, of course, where Buffy stands up. Right. Mm-hmm. And she says, you know, I was feeling sorry for you. You've suffered. But now I just know you're a thundering loony. Right. You know. Yeah. And so we see like Marcy cross that line into completely unsympathetic, you know, in the course of this story, yeah. which is which is kind of interesting is I hadn't really thought about it in terms of the Hayes Code, of course, because I hadn't really thought about her sexuality at all, because I, mm-hmm. didn't, I didn't feel like we had addressed that, you know, um, mm-hmm. except for I do think the way that she's always trying to get Cordelia's attention, like, you know, out of out of all the flashbacks, two of the three flashbacks are her trying to talk directly to Cordelia. 
mm-hmm. and getting nothing, you know, getting yeah. shut down entirely. But not just Cordelia, but also all the friends, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think that that's a kind of a really interesting read on this. That if she is, you know, even subtextually, you know, bisexual or lesbian or anything, that we have to make her completely unsympathetic. Yeah. You know, that she has our sympathy to a certain point. Yeah. Well, and I think it's, you know, we start talking about, we start the episode talking about the anger of the outcast in society. And I think that calling real justifiable anger um, is another aspect of how we erase people. Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, and we can, I think we'll talk about, we'll probably talk about this in a minute with mental illness. Yeah. um, Because... Buffy has done this a couple times already with with uh, mental illness as grounds for uh, evil or violent behavior. Yes. And I don't think that stops anytime soon. Um, yeah. But we also, I mean, with this idea of anger as being crazy um, is something that we do to people who have a legitimate complaint. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking about feminists and Black Lives Matter protesters being told to calm down or be more polite. Yeah. Um, that's tone policing. Yeah. That's discrediting the point by taking issue with the tone. Exactly. Um, and it's as... completely gaslighting elements, mm-hmm. you know, people in society who have a, a real legitimate complaint but are not heard. Mm-hmm. They're not heard when they're polite. Yeah. You know, we're not heard when we're polite. So we get angry and we step up and then they're like, oh, well, now you're crazy. You know, mm-hmm. so it's it's yeah. one of these things that that does erase anybody, you know, any marginalized group, mm-hmm. you know, um, with uh, with that kind of painting them as crazy. And we actually see that happen in the English conversation, the English class conversation with Cordelia. Yes. And here we have a black woman teacher, right? Who is talking yes. about Shylock and Shylock in, um, I believe it's Shylock is Merchant of Venice, isn't it? Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And she's talking about Shylock, who is a, a Jewish person, a marginalized person within the context of, of that story. Although we do see a lot of anti-Semitism throughout history. That's a whole other discussion. Also terrible. But what they do with <laughs> Shylock is they, you know, they make his Jewishness a big part of everything about him. It's basically his defining characteristic. And he's so evil because he wants this revenge. Right. You know? And here yeah. we have Cordelia basically representing this, you know, um, extremely privileged, extremely white, you know, Christian, right, you know, yeah. um, kind of p- empowered segment of society that will then look at that and say, you know, oh, it's just all about you. You know, mm-hmm. why is this all about you? Why is Shylock being such a jerk about this whole thing? You know, without right. completely undermining what his legitimate complaint was and the fact that nobody listens to, to anybody if they're being polite. Mm-hmm. You know, it just doesn't happen. So then we have this, you know, uh, the thing that struck me in that scene was that we have this, you know, black woman teacher who would be absolutely familiar with exactly the kinds of things that Shylock is dealing with. Yes. Kind of taking Cordelia's side. That's a really great point, Cordelia. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Um, and I get that Cordelia is supposed to be 
funny like we're supposed to look at cordelia who's like it's like this time i ran over this girl with my bike and she was all like oh it's about her ankle rather than my trauma you know yeah like we're obviously supposed to see cordelia as ridiculous in that moment but the complete lack of context for this teacher talking about this kind of situation you know it it felt it felt a little off to me did that feel off to you oh yeah yeah, that was really, really uncomfortable for mm-hmm. me. That was really unacceptable. Um, I mean, yeah. it's a great depiction of mm-hmm. white supremacy with, yeah. you know, here with Miss Miller and Cordelia. Um, not just with Cordelia in the way that she completely fails to understand privilege, but in the way she gets a cookie for doing the bare minimum yes. when she comes she up to... for doing yeah, the reading. yeah. She comes up to Miss Miller. She did her reading for English class. And Miss Miller is all, oh, it's so nice when someone does the reading. It's like, um, no, excuse me. Do reading. She does not no get a cookie kudos for, that. for doing what you're supposed to do. Exactly. That's not, you exactly. know, that's not how this works. So we've got, I mean, we could talk about we could talk about the racial dynamics just in that scene for an hour. Uh, well, it's, <laughs> we it's wanted to. race erasure too. Like absolutely this. this teacher you know and here's the thing i am glad to see a person of color getting work an actor of color getting work mm-hmm. i'm always glad to see that um but at the same time it what it does is it brings in a context to this scene which is completely missing from the scene and my guess is that the teacher character was written that anybody could play you know yeah. it didn't matter um and that they chose to give the job to a black woman which i think is great you know um, mm-hmm. but what we didn't do was then take another look at that scene and look at all of the context of that with this teacher so this teacher is now you know, Cordelia's favorite teacher, this teacher Mm -hmm. is not calling Cordelia out on any of her privilege on any of that perspective, you know, um, even though we do have starting off the scene that she is talking, you know, very sympathetically with Shylock, and like, how can we be more sympathetic to Shylock, but then Cordelia with all of her privilege comes in and says, Oh, no, it's not about Shylock. Why is he making everything about him? And she's just thrilled because Cordelia did the reading. Mm hmm. You know, so yeah, it's, it's, yeah, she's just, she's blown away by Cordelia's unique perspective on Shylock when, you know, Cordelia has completely missed the point. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't know. That whole scene I felt really uncomfortable with. I also did not particularly care for the fact that then, of course, the one person of color in the entire thing is, of course, the one who gets attacked and almost killed. Yeah. You know? Um, and yeah. then, of course, is is saved by the by the privileged white hero. Privileged <laughs> white character is saves. Yeah, yes, the white oh. savior. So there's a lot of things. Again, I don't think that that stuff was intentional. My guess is, you know, it wasn't, but it happened, and well, nobody thought anything about it. Well, and that's still we and we say this all the time, but mm-hmm. that's still problematic. It's right. still racist. If it happens yeah. and no one notices, it's that's almost erasure. more racist. Yeah. It's yeah, almost more it's racist because silent. it's I don't see you at all. I don't right. see this black woman's experience at all. Yeah. That, you know, it's that we're erasing it so completely Mm-hmm. with this narrative about Cordelia and how privileged she is and how funny that is. And I mean, right. I love Cordelia. I love mm-hmm. the way Cordelia stands up for herself yes. throughout the series. I love mm-hmm. the character that Cordelia becomes. Mm-hmm. But Cordelia here in this episode is not great. I mean, even with her her understanding of 
you know, being, feeling lonely, being surrounded by people and how um, kind of profound that Mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. She's still so blinded by her own privilege. Right. That it's really, I mean, it's really icky. (laughs) Well, see, here's the thing. I don't mind that Cordelia is blinded by her privilege. I think that that is something that we should be seeing. That is, she's she's white. She's wealthy. She is Mm -hmm. presumably, you know, Christian. She has ticked all of the privilege boxes except for male, right? Mm -hmm. So she's got a a high amount of privilege. Um, She's a kid in high school. She's not going to see her privilege at this point. Okay, fine. Um... I do. I like that she's smart. I like that she's insightful. I like that she's tough. I like all of these things about Cordelia. Um, and I and the thing is, is that when we see her, you know, really like like you know, swimming in her privilege, we do mock it. She is mockable. You know, we make mm-hmm. fun of her because she is so self obsessed. Because it is always about her. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's okay. Um, Cordelia doesn't really bother me as much in this episode as the context around her bothers me you know as as what we're not doing you know in in that moment we are making fun of her as the viewer because Mm -hmm. of the way that she's talking about Shylock but the teacher gives her a cookie yeah you know within the world she is still she's allowed to behave this way without anybody calling her out on it now Xander regularly calls Cordelia out I like that Mm -hmm. um Buffy and Willow see Cordelia you know for what she is and I like that um so so Cordelia doesn't really bother me so much as the as the context around her in this sure so another thing that we have kind of been uh, been talking about a little bit is this idea of mental illness as um it as a separation as mm-hmm. you know you're a thundering loony so now you deserve you know everything that you're going to get when right. when and that's the thing is that it's it's not any mental illness that Marcy may or may not have, right? Yeah. Um, Marcy is, the thing about Marcy is that she is invisible, but her goal is not to become visible, right? Her goal yes. is to get revenge on, I'm, I'm presuming she blames somehow Cordelia for making her invisible. Yeah. That somehow it's Cordelia's fault, even though all of the context in which she was invisible wasn't necessarily about Cordelia. She's trying to get Cordelia to see her and Cordelia wouldn't. And so now she feels like that's why she's invisible is my guess. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, or she just hates Cordelia because Cordelia well, has a lot of things that make her, you know, kind of hate. And Cordelia is hyper visible. I mean, as, Hyper-visible. A, as yes. a person, you know, Cordelia as a person who is popular and takes that responsibility very seriously. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Cordelia is... You know, everyone knows Cordelia mm-hmm. and right. no one knows Marcy. So yeah, no it's one remembers Marcy. Easy. Mm-hmm. It's it's I mean, from the the sort of more limited high school worldview, perhaps it makes sense to Marcy to target Cordelia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But it's but I mean, this is the thing, like like what it is that makes Marcy unsympathetic is not whether or not she has mental illness is not whether or not she is bisexual or lesbian. It is the fact that she is viciously attacking people who are not trying to hurt her. (laughs) Right. Yeah. She is getting, she's out for revenge. And so 
when Buffy justifies her lack of sympathy at this turn to mental illness as opposed to seriously bad and destructive behavior. Yes. You know, which are not necessarily associated. There are people who have no mental illness who do terrible things. And there are people with mental illness who do terrible things. It's not the mental illness that makes them do terrible things. It's being a bad person that makes you do terrible things. And the association that it's the mental illness as the justification for lacking that sympathetic, you know, element for Marcy Mm kind of hit me the wrong way. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't care absolutely. For that. You know, yeah. we have Cordelia in the beginning saying, I don't need the loony fringe vote. Yeah. You know, so we have this this repeated use of the word loony, which I'm guessing the writers probably thought was a funny word, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I think the, the greater context of it, and I mean, you know, you're a thundering loony is kind of a funny line. You know, yeah. I'm gonna, I'll admit it. It's kind of a funny line. Um, but the greater context of that is that we're not you know, hating on Marcy because she's a bad person making bad choices. We're hating on her now because she's, we're justified in hating on her because she's, you know, quote unquote crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it doesn't, Marcy has a legitimate complaint. She tried to make herself seen and Mm -hmm. she was not seen. Um, Mm -hmm. That doesn't give her the right to take her pound of flesh out of Cordelia's face, but it doesn't make her crazy either. It doesn't make her unstable she's in fact i think she's depicted as very deliberate which Mm -hmm. to me is sort of the opposite of crazy well i mean she's 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 representative i mean she's got that crazy laughter she's got this we we hear her ranting to herself you know that's true cordelia is that what you we we absolutely paint her as mentally unstable i think we absolutely do um but it's 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 that we're not acknowledging her legitimate complaint. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, like, she's choosing vengeance over restitution. Mm-hmm. She's choosing, rather than, you know, being invisible and wandering around this school, she's going to, like, find out about Giles and Buffy and Xander. Mm-hmm. She could have been sitting in on any one of those yep. <laughs> Scooby meetings talking about mm-hmm. demons and vampires in the whole mouth, right? Like... We could have told a story about this girl desperately trying to restore herself being seen, mm-hmm. you know, but instead it's this wild vengeance story, right. you know, with, with no context. We don't have as much context for Marcy throughout this as we do for Shylock in just the discussion of Merchant of Venice. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Marcy is interesting too in that she's invisible to herself. Yeah. That moment where she's revealed, where the, where she starts to disappear in class, um, she's that's played as you know she's terrified yeah she's losing her sense of identity Mm -hmm. um so she can't she can't see who she really is either um and i think that adds to i don't think that 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 was the intent um on Mm -hmm. the part of the show but i like the idea that she becomes she loses her humanity because she can't see herself anymore Mm -hmm. um and we get a little reflection of that haha with angel (laughs) When he shows up in the library right. and he's talking right. to Giles and he says, you know, uh, Giles is, you know, realizing that, oh, a vampire, you know, has no reflection and is so funny. I'm going to interrupt myself to say I just love Giles in that scene. I he's love so, Giles like, in that scene. He's so cute. He's so flustered around Angel. I- 
He's like, and oh. I love Giles and Angel. <laughs> I actually love that scene a, a ton. He, you know, Angel comes in. He's avoiding Buffy because he can't be around her because he has these feelings for her. Yeah. A vampire in love with a slayer. It's rather poetic in a maudlin sort of way. You know, Giles expressing um, expressing that, you know, understanding of what Angel is going through, you know, and the thing is, is that like Angel is an adult man. Angel is 200 years older than Giles. Like mm-hmm. Angel's been around, you know. So for them connecting as as adult men, you know, um, I thought was kind of nice. And I liked that, um, you know, when Angel says looking in the mirror every day and seeing nothing there, it's an overrated pleasure. Mm-hmm. You know, that's such an interesting kind of thing like to not see yourself yeah to not know what you look like Mm -hmm. you know and when he says it's an overrated pleasure yeah um I I find that a really interesting way of expressing that and I love that Angel has that kind of depth you know that he has such and we see this with Angel throughout the rest of the show like the Angel that we got in the early early episodes is not (laughs) real Angel like this is real Angel real Angel is thoughtful and smart and empathetic and he doesn't wig out because he's seen everything and like nothing scares him anymore. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so I really like that. I like that he has the access to the codex that Giles needs in order to figure out what the master is doing. So we're kind of bringing the master back in, you mm-hmm. know, kind of weaving him in before we get to our finale next week. Yeah. Um, so I really, I loved everything with Angel. That was, that was so great. I love that scene between them and, mm-hmm. and, Angel's I mean I think we we're really starting to get a truer picture of who Angel is and his sort of poetic sorrow Mm -hmm. over not being able to and I think does does Giles even call it poetic he's a a vampire in love with a slayer and it's kind of rather poetic yeah yeah. I just I I love that scene so much um I think it's really great I think it's one of the strongest scenes in here and it's not really about you know it's it's sort of folding in the overall story the big Mm -hmm. season long story you know just kind of getting a little piece of it in here so that we can get to the prophecy that will of course you know be huge in in next week's episode um but it's it's just a really nice moment it's beautifully acted by both of these guys um and then i love when angel shows up later and he can turn off the gas because he doesn't need to breathe yeah you know he's he's he shows up because he has the codex you know because he's bringing the codex to giles Mm -hmm. um and so i just really kind of liked having him in the background having him you know interacting with giles and with willow and with xander Mm -hmm. you know and kind of being part of that team you know and we have him as a nice he's a nice counterpoint to marcy and that he is also a an outcast sort of a figure he's a he is He's a different sort of bi in that he's a vampire with a soul. He's not right. human. He's not mm-hmm. really, he's not fully human. He's not really fully a vampire either. Mm-hmm. Or else yeah, he's, he's in both that at the same space. time. And Angel could have easily decided to take his isolation and, and, um, inability to really fit into any mm-hmm. of these spaces out on society. He could right. have said, you know, well, fuck all y'all. I'm just going to yeah. go cut up some people's faces or what. <laughs> like he, he could have done that. But he he has lost his reflection. He mm-hmm. can't see himself, but he is actively choosing. And I think you talk about this with about when you talk about Angel, the series, that he's yeah. actively choosing to do what he does and behave yes. in the ways that he behaves, um, which is a nice, you know, again, and I, I a nice counterpoint to Marcy choosing 
violence um, as a as a response to her her anger. Um, I mean, I had one more. It sort of loops us back around. But one more thing to say about the the depiction of mental illness and Marcy (laughs) is that, you know, when we get to when Buffy discovers Marcy's little little nest Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it, first of all, it just breaks my heart. I mean, her yeah. fire blanket and her mm-hmm. little, like, kitchenette area, and she's got a teddy bear, and it just, mm-hmm. like, oh. Because um, she's know, a child. Yeah. Like, that's the thing. Like, we're not acknowledging that she is a child. Yeah. But it made yeah. me think about, um, it made me think about homelessness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people, people experience homelessness are, um, in many parts of the country, uh, you know, suffering with mental illness or mm-hmm. um, members of the LGBTQ community, especially kids. Kids um, who run away, right? Yeah, or who are kicked out of their house. You know, we yeah. wonder We wonder why Marcy's parents, you know, we, we hear nothing about Marcy's parents. You know, she's yeah. missing. She's been missing for six months. Um, it's possible that she was not welcome at home either. Wow. You know, it's, because it's yeah. it's 10%, it's about 10% of the general youth population that identify as LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's 40% of the population of young people experiencing homelessness who identify oh. as being part of that community. Um, and there are lots and lots of reasons for that. But one of those reasons is that kids get kicked out of their homes. So she has yeah. made, you know, we've got this girl who, you know, I, I just, I really, really read hard into that queer narrative of the girl yeah. who is invisible mm-hmm. even to, even in her own home so much that she's God. living, you know, in the school. Um, either so dark because, and sad. Yeah. It's really sad. It's really sad. Oh, yeah. Marcy's a tragic kid. figure. And I think that that, you know, that's the that's the problem with that is one of the many problems with the Mm -hmm. tropes of you know what makes a villain in a story somebody Mm -hmm. who is somebody who is an outcast for whatever reason whether it's their you know their race their religion their sexual orientation um their uh ability whether you know their their able-bodiedness or not or their their um you know able-mindedness or not that those are the things that we call out in fiction as, mm-hmm. oh, well, this person, you know, this person is mentally ill, that for this person is evil. Right. It's, well, it justifies our, you know, like mainstream society's um, general approach of further, you know, further isolating these people. Yeah. Right. Because they're crazy, because they've got all these problems, because, that mm-hmm. you know, um, but it's interesting, though, with Marcy, because one of the things like we do get themes of vengeance um, later on in Buffy. Mm-hmm. And one of the things with Buffy is that it's not a story about vengeance. It's a story about protection. Buffy's role, yeah. like if there's a, you know, a bad person who has done multiple bad things, who's killed a ton of people, but isn't going to do that anymore, they get a pass. Right. Mm-hmm. Angel has killed like just I don't even know hundreds of hundreds people, thousands of people? Yeah. probably over the years right <laughs> um and yet because he has a soul now and he's not going to do that anymore he gets a pass when Spike gets his chip and he physically cannot hurt a human right he gets a pass right so Buffy is not a story about vengeance we do talk about vengeance a little bit with Anya 
because mm-hmm. of course she's a vengeance demon. Um, but she is then made human. And once she's made human and she can't, you know, like indulge that vengeance anymore, we kind of don't talk about it that much until, you know, I think season seven, we start talking season six. So season seven, we start talking a little bit more about the role of vengeance and what vengeance does here. We just have this child who has been isolated, who has been made invisible, who's been ignored, um, you know, and, and, you know, now is homeless, right. Mm-hmm. Has not gone home for whatever reasons, but I think reading into it that, you know, she got kicked out for being, you know, for being queer or whatever is, mm-hmm. is definitely a possibility given the, the subtext that we've got in this episode. Um, so you have this kid who's been through all this stuff and she is choosing vengeance. She mm-hmm. is choosing that over trying to resolve her situation, trying to be visible again. Mm-hmm. You know, that doesn't even seem to be an option. That's not what she's going after. Yeah. If the if there was some way that she could magically steal Cordelia's visibility and bring mm-hmm. it onto her own and make Cordelia invisible, mm-hmm. you would understand a little bit more. It still wouldn't be okay that she's, you know, tormenting Cordelia. But if that's what her goal was, I think you would understand it a little bit more. But instead, what we do is just say she is other. Mm-hmm. She is. She's bad. She's loony. She's invisible. She's queer or whatever it is you know and we isolate her and put her on the fringes and call her crazy yeah yeah so i don't know i think that was kind of interesting all right so do we have any arg the patriarchy moments for this one (laughs) well we've got i mean we've got xander talking about how great it would be to be invisible so he could protect the girls locker room Oh, God. I know. It's so gross. <laughs> it's so gross. And it's so gross. I want to like Xander in this episode so much. I really want to because he's got that great. Maybe it's a vampire bat. Maybe it's a vampire bat. I love that. I, I love his whole research boy when he comes out with the information yeah. and he's like there, you know, he's got some some capability there, which I really so love. So proud of you himself. Know. And yeah. And we get we also get a nice little peek into Xander's home life with yeah. Mom's making her famous call to the Chinese place. We've, Did your house even have a stove? Yeah, right? I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure we got into it when we talked about um, iRobot Eugene, but Xander's, mm-hmm. you know, we find out a little bit about Xander's family that has, yeah. you know, he's got um, a janitor in the, fa- you know, someone in his family yeah. was a janitor. Was it his uncle? Was a janitor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's how he knows this building. Um, so we've got a little bit of that. You know, Xander's home life, you know, Xander is is uh, maybe there's there's poverty in Xander's yeah. world. And mm-hmm. we're start we're getting little clues about that. And I just yeah. I liked that moment, the way that he sort of jokes about, you know, his mom not cooking. Right. That there's not going to be a home cooked meal. <laughs> I don't yes. know. Maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm reading too much into that as well. That's, that is my role here on Still Pretty. No. I'm just going to read too much. I'm reading too much. I think you're seeing things. I think um, that you have like your superpowers being able to see. And I, I like that you see these things. I mean, you know, every now and again, I'm going to have, I'm not going to agree, but I mean, I think that what you see is what you see in the text and it's always interesting. And yeah, I mean, Xander does have, we, we are of course throughout the course of the, of the story going to find out that that Xander has um, kind of a tragic home life. Mm-hmm. It is it is not good. It is absolutely at least um, 
verbally and emotionally abusive, if not physically abusive. Um, and so you, you do see that, that Xander comes from this background that is, that is a little dark, you know, Mm -hmm. and the fact that his uncle is a janitor, like is not, is not a big deal. You know, it just means he's, he's, you know, one of these blue collar workers, which is great. I mean, people work and that's fine, but I think that we do get the sense. I mean, I think there was something that he said about, you know, his, his uncle losing the job or something like that. There was some kind of like darkness in that story as well, you know, kind of hinted at. Um, yeah. So I think that, um, you know, with everything that Xander's got going on, stuff that we have only sort of hinted at at this point in the story and stuff that we, of course, are going to discover later, it can definitely give you sympathy for him that a lot of these jokes that he makes, even when they're gross, like, you know, I'm going to protect the, you know, the girl's locker room, mm-hmm. that he runs to humor to as a defense mechanism oh yeah i mean it's you know it's it's fairly clear in his um in his characterization and in in situations like that my sympathy for him even when he's making these really gross jokes is heightened because Mm -hmm. you know he's really just whatever the first thing the first funny thing that comes to mind and as somebody who has made you know throughout her lifetime a lot of really, really poor jokes in exactly that vein, right? Okay. I'm just looking for something fun to say. I just, yeah. I'm looking to amuse people. I'm looking to be cute. And I will say things. I have said things that I do not mean. <laughs> the, the implications of which are gross and not good. And I've written things in my books with the same thing. Like mm-hmm. I've done this. Like I know what that is. So I yeah. have a lot of sympathy for Xander. Overall, you know, there's a lot of his behavior that does need and require a severe side I mm-hmm. but at the same time yeah you know I sympathize with it I sympathize with that need to make the joke you yeah. know at, at all costs yep and maybe it's a vampire bat I'm sorry but I that is that. great that, that is, is a great terrible. joke and maybe no one laughs I'm so mad at I all laughed. of them in that moment <laughs> I laughed much harder than I really should have alone yeah. in my house at that joke I thought it was great <laughs> I um, thought it was great. Yeah, I love I love that moment. I mean, and there are a lot of there are a lot of little things that I love in this mm-hmm. episode too. I love, you know, I love harmony so much. Yeah, oh harmony. <laughs> oh my god, I love harmony. And the thing is we haven't even seen Mercedes McNabb as Harmony. Oh god. It's just playing the normal, you know, like the very flat yeah. popular girl's best friend. But we're gonna see so much of Harmony, which is so fantastic. Oh, and I just I love I love seeing Harmony, even when she's not given anything interesting to do. I just she just gives me joy because, you know, it's coming because I know know it's it's coming. coming. It's so good. I love love her so much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But there are a bunch of great little things in this episode. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the the something something that just jumped out at me is really weird, but also kind of fun and cool. And I really, really want people to talk about this on discord and the forums the textbook at the very end when marcy is in her invisible kid rehabilitation program um oh i don't think it's rehabilitation no (laughs) well and presumably they're all naked did you think about that do their clothes become invisible as soon as they put them on i don't think so because the the cloth it it's not what's touching you because marcy's able to touch you know, we see like floating knives. Oh, the and, bat, right? And she then the bat, the bat. And she, that when the curtain, when Buffy kicks the curtain down or, or kicks yeah. her into the curtain and the curtain falls over her, it doesn't disappear when it touches her. her. Gives her yeah, she must be naked so, through this whole thing. Yeah. So these kids are all going around naked. I think that's an interesting 
little little detail oh my there. God. I don't know. Yeah, I hadn't um, really thought about that. Yeah. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> the vulnerability <laughs> of the outcast? I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, the textbook at the end, the the text that is in that book, uh, mm-hmm. are the lyrics to Happiness is a Warm Gun by the Beatles. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I hadn't even noticed that. No, I mean, this is this is the this is the uh, literary scholar right. in me coming out, but I always want to know if there's writing. I want to know yes. what does it say. What is the writing? What does it say? What's the writing? So I paused it, and I'm like, that is the lyrics <laughs> to "Happiness Is a Warm Gun" by the Beatles. That is really interesting. So yeah, so people who you know, all of our our music scholars, and you know, I know we have people in the Chipperish community who are mm-hmm. all over the music appreciation and theory oh, yeah. and you know musical mm-hmm. history. I want to know, tell me everything you know about that song, because, you know, I've got Google, but I trust your brains. (laughs) But I'd rather have these people. I know the Discord chat, the stuff that people are bringing into the Discord chat has been so fantastic. There is such incredible insight happening there. It's a great place. So so, uh, I'm looking forward to our our chipperettes in Discord, um, you know, bringing us some more insight into that. That's going to be really great. Um, All right. So what's your girl power moment of the week? My girl power moment of the week. There's... There are actually several. Um, I think for me, it's Buffy's um, just her her uh, incredible. <clears throat> what do I want to say here? <laughs> I didn't write this in the notes, so now I'm like off the top uh... of my head. Um, my, I mean, there's there are several girl power mm-hmm. moments of the week. I love it when Buffy goes up to when when Buffy finds Marcy's nest and realizes yeah. that she was right about this girl mm-hmm. that she had mm-hmm. you know, Buffy's got this deep um empathy. Yeah. And I really really love that. I mean, I think it's too bad that that's undercut at the end with the, right. you know, you're a thundering loony, but mm-hmm. I really love that Buffy Buffy is the one who who identifies to the group that no, we did this to her. This right. isn't something mm-hmm. that she did to herself. We did this to her. This is our fault. But also yeah. understands, um, you know, she understands enough of what's going on with Marcy to fi- to figure out what happened. I love that. I also love when Marcy is pulling Cordelia up through the ceiling of the mm-hmm. mop closet, and Buffy just does this great. Just grabs onto a pipe and does a pull up. Just pulls herself right. up. <laughs> it's just, it's wonderful female strength. I love it. Makes me happy. She's really tough. I yeah. love that. I love when uh, that moment where she can't see Marcy, you know, and she's just like, she tells Cordelia to be quiet and she just senses her. Mm-hmm. You know, she like, she uses that she's been training you know, she's yeah. getting a sense of everything. It's not vampire. You know, this is human. It's invisible human, but it's human, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's able to figure out where Marcy is, cover her up in the um, in the curtain. And then, of course, the guys come in and take her. Mm-hmm. But it's just that that nice moment where Buffy is taking control of the situation and she's, you know, she's fighting back. It's really, really nice. I like that. And that brings me to my favorite part of the episode yes. is that moment um yeah. the way that it's shot it's just so pretty and mm-hmm. she says buffy says cordelia shut up yeah <laughs> and then it goes <laughs> and then it goes all quiet and she like stands up into the light and she's got this beautiful halo of light behind mm-hmm. her and there's like wind in the bronze right but yeah. i'm so fine with it because it's just such a pretty shot and there's just like you just see her like you know 
reaching out with her feelings and you know right. using the force and whatever. Yes. It's just it's wonderful. It's such a it's really beautiful nice. shot. And then we have this moment of silence, and then she turns. You know, Marcy makes a little noise, and she turns around and whacks her. But yeah, oh my god, I love that. I love everything about that moment. No, it is. It's a really, really good. What about you, Lonnie? What's your favorite part? Um, for me, my favorite part is Cordelia. I actually really like Cordelia. I like that we gave Cordelia, instead of just making her the bitchy mean girl, you know, um, which is kind of what we've been doing throughout, is is we gave her, like, intelligence and insight, you know, and we made her character um, a little more interesting, a little more layered, a little more nuanced. And even though, like, let's face it, it's still Cordelia, there's not a lot of nuance there yet right (laughs) yeah Um, but I do I like that I like her a lot yeah and she's not she's she's the pretty popular girl but she's not dumb but she's not She figures out what's going on with Buffy yeah and the group yeah and she knows to come to Buffy for help I really like that I like that too All right, that's it for today. To join in the discussion on Twitter, follow me at Lonnie Diane Rich and Noelle at Noelle Aloud and use the hashtag #StillPretty. You can also visit the Chipperish forums. Go to chipperish.com, click on forum, and join in the fun. Or you can keep Chipperish Media going to the tune of $1 a month or more and gain access to the live chat in Discord, where you can hang out with me and Lonnie and all the Chipperish patrons who will sign your yearbook with something better than have a nice summer. (laughs) And really, guys, get your butts to Discord. If you're a patron and not there, get in there because it's amazing. People have fantastic insight. It's awesome. Uh, visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out more. You can also show your support for Still Pretty by going to Apple Podcasts and giving us a review. That's one of the most effective ways to show support for your favorite podcasts. Or you can use your social media platform of choice to tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. We will be back next time with Prophecy Girl, Yay. the 12th episode of season one, which is also the season one finale. Yes. Until then... This is all about us. Us, us, us. <laughs> <laughs>